0: Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows on our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. Okay, so today we are wrapping up the Vegan Voices series that has centered around this new anthology, Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers, I've interviewed six of the 50 contributing authors to this collected work. I also contributed an essay. And I really hope that it has inspired you to get the book. Maybe it will still inspire you to get the book. Books are such a great gift for the upcoming gifting season. Uh, Maybe giving vegan voices to a friend for the holidays. There's also my book, The Ultimate Betrayal. It's about humane washing and greenwashing in animal farming, and that's another idea for her gifting. So, there's a lot of great books out there uh, for this gifting season, and our guest today actually has a number of incredible books that she has written. Today we have Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns joining us. This is Karen's fourth appearance on the podcast, and she is always so knowledgeable and has so much incredible insight into chickens. And this interview was, again, just so powerful, such powerful perspectives on veganism and our movement and our relationship with chickens and all birds. So we're going to just jump right in with our conversation. And I know you're going to enjoy this one. Okay, I would like to welcome Karen Davis to the podcast. Karen has her PhD in English. She is, of course, the president and founder of United Poultry Concerns. And she also oversees our sanctuary with over 100 resident birds uh, in Virginia. And Karen was inducted into the National Animal Rights Hall of Fame for outstanding contributions to animal liberation. She's the author of numerous books. Books and essays. And her latest book is called For the Birds From Exploitation to Liberation. She has numerous other books as well. And it's wonderful to have her again on the podcast. Welcome,
1: Karen. Thank you, Hope. I'm so happy to be on your podcast.
0: Again. <laughs> Yay. Yes. Well, yeah. it's great. Great to have you again, and I want to ask you how you're doing, and I know that you took in some birds recently. There was a rescue or something. Tell tell us about that.
1: Well, in October, we took in 11 hens from a laboratory in Norfolk, Virginia, who every year when they finish doing the blood tests and mosquito tests and whatever else they do with them they arranged with me to bring the hens to our sanctuary here in Virginia, uh, in a little town called Machapongo, where we're located with our headquarters and sanctuary. So uh, this year in October, October 5th, exactly, the hens were brought by the biologist, Jennifer. And we were also happy that woman from another part of Virginia was so eager to be able to adopt another five hens from the laboratory that we had arranged months in advance that we would all converge here when the hens were brought here by Jennifer. And uh, so everybody was here and the five hens, well actually six, went to Catherine, the person who is going to be a new chicken keeper for the first time, that is a loving and caring chicken keeper. And uh, we now have 11 hens here, new ones, in our 125 bird sanctuary. And in addition, our wonderful sanctuary helper, Paul Conan, who has a few chickens whom he loves and cares for, decided that he would take the single rooster who was part of this group this year, which was unusual, but there was a rooster. So since we already have eight rescued roosters, and he was very eager to have this rooster along with two other hens, he and his wife Ashley said, yeah, they would love to have these three birds. So I just talked to Paul a little while ago, and he says they're doing great. And I can report that the new birds in our sanctuary fit in really well immediately. They, they're they a little shy. They don't know what's happening. They had lived in cages in the laboratory uh, for six months. This was the first time they ever set foot on the actual ground. Uh, they had lived in wire cages. So mm-hmm. stepping on ground is just such a wonderful experience for chickens and after a few minutes of kind of learning to walk on it they are ready to go and mm. that's wonderful to observe
0: yeah and and but what so what would happen to these birds from the laboratory otherwise i mean would they just were they killing them and you said that that you would take them or how did that come about
1: well actually it was quite a number of years ago maybe 10 And I learned through the grapevine about these chickens who were shipped to various laboratories around the country to do certain types of tests, which I have to confess I have not inquired too deeply about because I did not want to scare the biologists away. Mm. I wanted to be able to at least be able to give a home to as many as, let's say, still survive from whatever number they took in initially. Right. So uh, these hens are shipped, you know, they're mass produced. They're Mm. mass produced by mass production hatcheries. They're shipped to these laboratories around the country. And in the case of the Norfolk Laboratory, actually there are two of these laboratories, at least, in Norfolk, Virginia. But uh, what I understood about 10 years ago was that since they didn't seem to have any place for these chickens to go once they were done with them in the fall they would ship them to the local zoo and um, the zoo would feed them live to animals who eat live animals like raptors and uh, feed them dead or alive to zoo animals and this is a common source of food for zoo animals. They come from all kinds of horrible mass production laboratory situations. So anyway, it's not in any way a kind, compassionate, or just situation. We have a little tiny microcosm of rescue that we take advantage of here. Wonderful. I'm glad to hear
0: that there are some new uh, additions to the sanctuary and that they're doing well. Well, Karen, you are one of the authors in a new anthology called Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. And of course, this is our Vegan Voices series, and you are our keynote uh, guest. You're going to be our, our final guest in the series uh, as a contributing author to this anthology. And your article was, was really powerful. It's called With heart and voice, will birds sing or will they be silent? And in this essay, you talk about the disappearance of wild birds from the world as the population of farmed chickens increases, farmed birds increases. Can you elaborate on this really sad and disturbing phenomenon about birds in the world where wild birds are declining
1: as farmed birds are increasing?
0: Can you talk more about that? I can.
1: Uh, Actually, it is a terrible situation that wild birds are enduring because of human activity and human activity, including particularly animal farming, the expansion of animal farming, uh, the erosion of habitat uh, to grow more and more soybeans, in part to feed factory farm chickens and, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, to graze uh, cows and uh, just all of human activity. But certainly agribusiness is one of the biggest causes of the loss of habitat, the erosion of habitat that birds need, wild birds need in order to not only survive, but to thrive. So right now, Wild Bird International in 2018 reported that over 40% of all birds on the planet are in serious decline. So that's a terrible statistic to think about. And it's a a situation that Rachel Carson in Silent Spring published in 1962, used as a kind of barometer of how our Pollution, our chemical industry particularly, is causing the the, the decline of wild birds whose songs and whose presence used to be everywhere in the United States and other parts of the world. And now there are whole areas where they once were very, very prominent and active. You don't hear a single bird. So now the situation has become more dire as a result of human activity. And at the same time, because of human activity, uh, the number of domesticated chickens has grown exponentially. And the article in The Economist called Chickenomics, Mm. how chicken became the world's most popular meat. And it explains that the total mass of farmed chickens exceeds that of all other birds on the planet combined. And as I continue to explain what was meant here, this news comprises two very important facts. One is the number and the size, the body size of chickens suffering for food worldwide. So it's their numbers and just that they blow up to such an abnormally huge size in six or five weeks and then they're slaughtered. And the second fact comprised in this statistic is the disappearance of wild birds from the world as I just described. So we're seeing a a terrible set of conditions that are interrelated. Uh, The suffering of the chickens in factory farm operations and uh, the just disappearance of free living birds. And of course, when we talk about the disappearance of free living birds, we're also talking about just the suffering they endure in not being able to uh, use their uh, migratory landing spaces, for example, in eight parts of Asia and other places, Uh, how they suffer in having so many of their eggs no longer being hatchable because of all of the uh, contamination and pollution and the toxins that human activity has proliferated around the globe. So uh, birds, both the chickens in the factory farms and the free living birds are both telling an interrelated story. Of the horror of humanity's behavior on the earth, where birds and other animals are concerned.
0: Wow, that was really powerful. And I thought of so much. I thought of how people love uh, birds and bird watching. There's a, a really popular subsection of nature lovers that are very focused on birds. Uh, and bird watching is such a huge popular hobby. It's just amazing that, you know, as you said, our farming of the animals and using all the land and the pesticides that go to the feed that's being fed to all the farmed animals is part of that whole process of degrading the earth, making the eggs unviable, that all that, uh, all that being so connected, that was, you know, really. Um, very powerful and I, I wonder you know people that are so that love birds so much if they could make that connection if you love birds the decline of birds the 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 plight of birds of wild birds is so connected to what we eat that we are eating other birds it's amazing
1: absolutely yeah it's um, it, it is very interconnected
0: yeah I saw this really well <laughs> kind of Interesting but horrible movie that was about bird watchers. It was a young, like young kids, high school age, that had a bird watching club. And they were after this very rare bird to see this, you know, see and photograph this very, very rare bird. And the whole movie is kind of their journey to find this one amazing rare bird. And they run into some hunters in the woods while they're searching for this bird and the hunters kill a bird and they think it's this rare bird and they run and they're freaking out and they're sad and they're, they're like, oh, this it's this rare bird. But then when they examine the bird, they realize that it wasn't that rare bird. It was just a common or more common bird And the, the, the kids are like, oh, and everybody's relieved. And then they like, they have this, uh, you know, great exchange with the hunters and the hunters give them a ride out of the, and it was just like, what? And then uh, I think it was very purposely placed at the end of the movie, the kids were eating chicken wings. And I think that that was on purpose to show that, you know, we only care about certain birds, rare birds. It was really disturbing and confusing because it's like, well, if you love birds and you're going to put so much energy into these one you know, these rare birds, how can you disregard all the others? It's it was
1: just very it's a really weird movie. Well, first of all, the idea of killing the one rare bird is itself I and mean, so now there're no rare birds right but then there's the fact that all the other birds are oh well they're just common birds well they're only common birds in our in our in, in our minds i mean they're no less unique individually than the rare bird right uh, as far as who they are in themselves and then we see at a further remove of course that the children are uh, unable to connect uh, the chicken wings with chickens or chickens with birds, yeah. so let alone a rare bird. So it's, it's so sad. Just, it's it so is so sad. sad. Yeah. And of course, yeah. our job is to try to overcome all of this ignorance and try to reach people about really the bizarreness of just the situation, the movie that you just described, how bizarre all of that is, and yeah. how terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So going back to your article in Vegan Voices, you go on to talk about how farmers and other people will often argue that the chickens that are trapped in farming and animal agriculture, they, they, they can't know that they're, that they're miserable, that their lives are miserable, because that's all they know. So this is an argument that we sometimes hear that chickens you know, don't know any different. So how can they know that their lives are miserable? And of course, you argue that they do know, we know, but can you explain how we know?
1: Well, as I have written and as I have thought for years and years, the experience of knowing is not just confined to somebody's brain, whether they're a human or a non human animal, including birds. In addition, If you think about the idea of babies who are conceived and grow in the womb of a woman who is a heroin addict, for example, or a cocaine addict, and that child is born with an addiction, you could say, well, that child never knew anything but being addicted to a dangerous drug. So therefore they, are not really suffering because they're, uh, they don't know anything else. Memory and experiences are not just confined to the brain, that our bodies, our cells know whether they are doing well or whether they are in jeopardy or whether they are being poisoned. Our organs know this, our hearts Our lungs, our livers, our bloodstream, all of this within us is alive and is responding to the situations that they encounter based on what we eat, based on what we breathe in. They are constantly acting on our behalf. And so to say that our lungs, if all they've ever been filled with is cigarette smoke, uh, have no basis for suffering because they have never known fresh air is silly because lungs evolved in nature to breathe oxygen and other components of fresh air. So they do know, they do know what they're missing. So something that I read years ago from the veterinary scholar, Michael W. Fox, was this he wrote and this was in 1983 talking about the suffering of farmed animals and how what disease, the diseases that they develop show that they are in fact experiencing the terrible and unnatural conditions in which they are confined and he writes that freedom and well-being are more than intellectual concepts They are a subjective aspect of being, not exclusive to humanity, but inclusive of all life. This is not an anthropomorphic claim. It is logically probable and empirically verifiable. And I have quoted that statement numerous times because it captures the fact that experience is not just a human event, and that experience is not just something in a brain, but that it is something that, that is embodied. And this recent article I just described called Enduring Memory, it says that memory and experiences in sentient beings appears to be not just in skull, that is in your skull, but embodied. That is your whole body can have Memories and experiences. So there's all this information which is showing that that an animal, including a human animal, has experiences that their body knows what is better or worse for them. As the philosopher, animal rights philosopher Tom Reagan talked about, that sentient beings are beings who can experience what subjectively is better or worse for them. And again, it's not just human beings and it's not just an experience in the brain, but it's the whole self. It's the whole embodied self. So when we hear farmers airily dismissively saying that, oh, well, what can a hen know? She's never known anything else but her present confinement, which he also says causes her to be happy and content and even to sing in her cage. Well, we know this is just what I call farm speak. Uh, it is just, it, it is really a combination of ignorance and cynicism on the part of exploiters.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what I think about on this issue is that, you know, our bodies are born to do certain things. And and like you said our lungs are born to breathe clean air and likewise our feet and legs are born to move. And for us if we you know were confined to a chair even though our legs were functioning we would certainly feel the desire to want to get up and move. Uh, a chicken is no different. I think that when they're confined, their little legs want to move around. When you know they're unable to. They want to spread their wings. They want to peck at the ground, which is such a, you know, their beaks are such a, a tactile and an important part of exploring the world. And when they're not able to do that, there is an inherent frustration. And- well, it
1: isn't only mental frustration, it's the fact that our muscles get sore when they're cramped. Yeah. Uh, whether, yeah. Whether we're a chicken or a human being. And I'll just, I have to tell you, an experience I once had was many years ago, I attended a poultry science convention. And one of the uh, chicken experimenters was talking to one of his colleagues when we were all sitting in our chairs waiting for the presentations to begin. He was talking about his flight to the conference from wherever he came from. He was talking about how cramped the plane ride had been and how mm. glad he was when he was able to get out of the plane and stretch his legs. Yeah, And i thought well you do experiments all the time particularly on hens in battery cages and i almost wondered if if he was being ironic <laughs> probably not <laughs> wow. about the fact that he couldn't stand to get out or to wait to get out of the airplane and out of his seat and stretch his legs which were all cramped and everything and yet he has no problem with Treating hens like that, and they're much more cramped than he was in his uh, airplane seat. Mm. Plus, uh, they're in there for a year or so without being able to move.
0: Yeah, uh, ironic and uh, just very selfish. You know, not not seeing the world beyond yourself and and humans. Yeah, it's very sad. So, Karen, you have also written recently about pain and suffering and how not all suffering is physical, and how farmed animals suffer psychologically. Uh, We've been talking a little about this,
1: but, but can you tell us more about this? Well, I know just from living with chickens since starting in 1985, I've written extensively about what I've observed in the chickens with whom I interact every day. And if anybody wants the best article about chickens, in my opinion, it's my article called The Mental Life of Chickens or The Social Life of Chickens, which appeared in an anthology about animals, I think it was in 2011, and it's on our website under the category Thinking Like a Chicken, in which I talk about how chickens are so aware of their surroundings, They are so cognizant of everything that's going on around them. And certainly the, the kinds of suffering they endure is not only the physical suffering that they endure if they are in an inimical environment, which does not answer to any of their needs or any of the behaviors that are part of their genetic nature. I mean, they have a genetic nature that is responsive to or that feels the deprivation of the things they need i mean a chicken doesn't didn't just evolve to live in trees the trees and the tree limbs and the rich soil and the foraging for food and the normal socializing and all of the things and the nesting and the raising of their chicks all of these activities that they do externally are embedded internally in who they are. And so, as we've been discussing, uh, that uh, a a chicken isn't only experiencing, for example, painful physical disorders as they do in factory farms, which is reported on extensively in farmed animal literature. I mean, mean, there's no secret about it. The farmed animal journals and magazines and science uh, journals, they all talk about all of these diseases, these man-made diseases which don't occur in chickens in nature. They describe them, they describe what they call emerging diseases, the anatomical anomalies that have become embedded in the genome of the chicken, in the genetic nature of the chicken. These are all implanted there by Uh, human beings, by chicken experimenters. And then these chickens end up in the chicken houses and in the slaughterhouses and ultimately in people's mouths and stomachs. But chickens are whole beings as we are. Their minds are well-developed. They have been shown to have very complex cognitive abilities. Uh, Mother hens can suffer over seeing their chicks Uh, Being in a a distressful situation, she runs and tries to help them. And I can just give one quick example from our sanctuary. A couple of years ago, it turned out that one of our hens rescued from a battery cage, excuse me, a cockfighting raid, because cockfighters keep hens to lay the eggs that become the roosters who they torture and fight to death. For breeding. But anyway, yeah, we took in 50 chickens from this raid in Virginia Beach in 2018. Well, in 2019, in May, it turned out that even though we are scrupulous about gathering all of our birds' eggs, so we don't want them to be reproducing in in a sanctuary where we want to have a home for those who already need a home, but lo and behold, I discovered that one of those hens, the so-called game hens, when I saw what looked like an egg under her that I was going to snatch up, I went to grab that egg and there was movement under her body. And it turned out she had five newborn baby chicks under her. Mm. So, okay. On the one hand, I was distressed. On the other hand, I was kind of thrilled.
0: Because (laughs) it was
1: so wonderful to see a mother hen actually have a chance to be a mother hen. And to see these brand new born baby chicks. Shortly after that, we discovered that those baby chicks were so small that they could get through the wires that surround our predator proof enclosure Mm. and that they would end up on the other side among all the weeds and things there. And so uh, we had to keep grabbing them and they would be chirping distressfully. And the mother hen would be going almost crazy, almost crazy that her baby chicks were out of her reach that she could not help them Mm -hmm. and she could not reach them. And at one point when I got close to her to reassure her, we did get all the baby chicks out of there, by the way, and we fixed the lower part of the fence so they couldn't get out of there again. But meanwhile, at that, on that Saturday morning, I got close to her to reassure her. And she was so distressed that she jumped up and with her claws and she scraped my face, not as a matter of aggression toward me personally, but just that she was so distressed that she did not have her chicks, that she could not control what was happening to them. So I saw firsthand how distressed a mother hen can become when she cannot uh, get her chicks. So this is an example of uh, a, a direct emotional response from a mother hen who wants to read, reach her chicks and who is desperate to help them and to not let them experience any peril, Mm -hmm. So the fact is that, again, numerous experiments have been done to show that chickens uh, experience empathy, that they uh, relate in a cordial and empathic way to one another. But again, I see this, uh, these realities acted out every day in our sanctuary. So uh, uh, chickens know. I remember once uh, hearing somebody say, well, you know, chickens, this was actually an animal welfare person of all things of all things, but he was saying, well, there's no real evidence that a chicken has a sense of the future. And I'm like, well, that's nuts. Of course they do. (laughs) I mean, first of all, a sense of the future and a sense of the past are intimately connected. You want to be in a place that you've already experienced and you want to go back to it. Or on the other hand, You want to avoid a place you've experienced as a bad place and you try to avoid that place. So you either want to get into a place that you remember as having been a happy place and now you anticipate and want to get back into it. Or if it was a terrible place or a terrible human being, for that matter, or other type of predator, you do everything you can to avoid that predator or that terrible place. And so memory and expectation are intimately connected. And and I've seen it enacted time and time again in our chickens and, and in our turkeys. So the idea that chickens don't have a memory, they don't anticipate, they don't plan. Well, why do they make nests? if they don't have any plans. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and it's interesting because it seems that in the animal rights movement, we tend to focus on the physical suffering. We tend to focus on you know, when when we list the horrible things that are happening to farmed animals, often it's the physical things that are happening, the debeaking and the confinement and and that. And we don't talk as much about the misery or the psychological impact. And and I wonder why that is. I wonder if it is that we are concerned that people won't believe that animals have that kind of capacity. Uh, but if that's the case, then even more so we should be using those arguments because we need to tell people, we need to um, inform them that they do have those capacities, that they can be miserable and, and suffer psychologically.
1: Yeah? Well, first, first of all, if a chicken is in great pain, and they are suffering from horrible, painful diseases. And their legs are in the pain that these chickens' legs are in, and their ab- abdomens are oozing disease fluids and uh, terrible smelling odors. And chickens have a good sense of smell, by the way. And uh, their whole body is just a wreck of painful, racking ordeals. Mm. Uh, they are suffering emotionally terribly. They're experiencing a body which is torturing them. So again, the body and and the mind of the birds are one event. I mean, if I I am in extreme pain, my mind is registering that pain and I am suffering. So there's no two ways about it. I think that if animal uh, advocates tend to focus on the physical aspects of suffering at the expense of the mental torture. Part of it is because in the movement, the focus has been on physical pain and unfortunately has overlooked the fact that suffering means more, it it includes pain, but it is not only about physical sensory pain. It is also it is fundamentally about experiencing a trauma or an injury, physical or mental. So, suffering is a bigger, more encompassing concept than pain. But the pain and the general misery of birds and other farmed animals, and of course, animals in laboratories and other terrible situations that humans impose upon them, is so evident, is so obvious that it tends to be focused on by animal advocates. And the issue of subjective experience, as opposed to pure bodily experience, or I will say physical experience, tends to seem to be, well, a more nebulous area mm. to yeah. try to make definitive statements about. But again, there's enough information out there now. Mark Beckoff, who is a renowned writer and animal ethologist. Uh, he writes for psychology today and there's enough in his writings. There's enough in Jonathan Balcom's writings. There's enough information in my writings uh, based on direct experience and extensive reading that really we have a plethora of accounts and information to make the strong and sensible case that as Michael W. Fox wrote that suffering and well-being are not merely confined to human beings and they are not merely physical, but they are a subjective aspect of all sentient beings. That means subjective means mental as well as physical, subjective. One of the things that's often overlooked in animal advocacy discourse is happiness and well-being in animals. Because, including chickens, because there's nobody more happy on this planet than chickens when they're happy and they're cheerful <laughs> and they're enjoying themselves. And it's very evident in their voices and in their body language. And so uh, we understand, I believe, I'm certain we understand more about the quality and the intensity and the type of suffering, including but not only pain, that chickens and turkeys and pigs and ducks and others experience and fish experience when we understand what they enjoy and how they express their happiness and their pleasure and their um, well-being. So I think that is an overlooked element of our animal advocacy. And one of the Uh, good things that has happened in the past 10 years is the growth of farmed animals, very, you know, the good farmed animal sanctuaries, including the micro sanctuaries, uh, which focus particularly on chickens are showing people, well, how much chickens and, and other farmed animals enjoy and want to be in the grass. They want to be among trees. They want to be in the world of nature. They want to breathe fresh air they want to be outside. That's what they want to do. That's who they want to be. And uh, I have to mention, I've been in touch with a person who runs a shelter in India, and she has developed a different way of defining what has been called lesser beings. What we in our society... Stereotypically referred to as lesser beings are beings we consider ridiculously to be inferior creatures. Chickens have been considered lesser beings. Birds have been considered lesser beings than mammals. All other animals are considered lesser beings than humans, and that whole term that is used in this uh, very uh, prejudicial and stereotypical pompous way of speaking about ourselves versus all the rest of the animal kingdom. But um, this particular person wrote to me about her concept of lesser beings is how Animals who are severely traumatized, as they all are in farming, animal farming, who are severely traumatized, experience themselves as lesser beings, as beings who have been reduced and stripped of who they are. And that this is a form of suffering that they that we hardly even think about. And that the term lesser beings isn't something that describes how we define them, but it's how they experience themselves when they are completely at our mercy, experiencing learned helplessness, experiencing the stripping of the way of their dignity, experiencing having their bodies abused and disrespected and treated obscenely, that they experience themselves as lesser beings than the full embodied beings nature intended them to be and which they know within themselves is who they are. So expanding on
0: the chicken's joy and exuberance, you also wrote in Vegan Voices in the anthology about how chickens talk to each other and the world. And I wanna read a quote from your essay in Vegan Voices, you said, quote, something I learned about chickens when I started knowing them decades ago is how vocally charged they are morning to night. All day long, I hear their voices outside ringing and singing. I have felt the true sense of their vocal exuberance and how utterly their voices express their vitality. Can you tell us more about this and the, the individual nature of chickens
1: and chickens' voices? Absolutely. Well, first of all, chickens don't just cluck. They do cluck, but it's not, even the word cluck isn't, doesn't quite describe the nuances of vocalizations that I hear in our chickens uh, constantly. Roosters crow. Uh, They crow in the very early morning hours when for us it's still dark out because chickens see infrared light. Therefore, they see the sunlight 45 minutes to an hour before we do. So in their tropical forest habitats, which they've carried over into all of their domestic situations, uh, roosters will start crowing when it's still dark out because for them it's no longer dark. It's now the sun is up coming up. So that's when they like to jump down from their tree branches and start scurrying around the floor of the forest and foraging for their food and exploring and doing all the things that chickens love to do in the early morning and again in the evening, especially before they settle down to roost at night. But you see chickens and you hear chickens. There are many voices. I can't really imitate them, so I'm not going to do a poor (laughs) imitation of what is really such a a charming and uh, vigorous and sometimes very quiet and subtle uh, clucking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and cooing and um, all of the different voices of the birds. Of course, in the afternoon, they love to sit under the trees quietly. Certainly, they are just very expressive. And at night, since we have a 12,000 square foot predator-proof enclosure that includes the trees and bushes that the chickens love, it's wonderful to hear the chickens assemble themselves and get settled down, which takes an hour or more, usually more, in the trees and the bushes at night because this isn't something where each one just jumps up onto their tree branch and that's the end of it. They they just have this commotion. There's a lot of commotion. You can actually hear the tree branches rustling around and you hear them just getting ready for the night. And then the rooster will jump up. Kalua is one of our roosters. He jumps up there at night and uh, they're just, uh, there's a lot of commotion. And then there comes a moment when suddenly there is no longer a sound and they're totally quiet until the next morning. And, you know, one of the really cute things is that we have a little bathroom on the first floor here. And if you look outside that bathroom window, there's a big bush there and it's one of the big bushes that several of our hens and our rooster Kahlua likes to uh, perch in for the night. And so I go in there, let's say maybe around seven o'clock just to uh, say hi to the hens and the rooster isn't up there yet, but the hens start coming up there. And when I look at them through the window and there they are, they're right next to me and they're looking in and their eyes are focused on me and chickens have excellent eyesight, much better than we do, both distance and close up and everything in between. They have excellent hearing. And so it makes sense that birds who have excellent hearing would also have voices. And as I once read um, by uh, a person who was very well acquainted with chickens, he said, well, remember that chickens come from the dense tropical forests. And that means that they can't, when they break up into small groups during the day, they can't always see each other because of all the foliage. So he says, they have to develop a way to be able to communicate with one another as social animals who wanna keep tabs on what's going on and communicate. So they develop through nature, very, very good hearing. And so chickens are among the many, many tropical forest dwellers, monkeys and parrots and so on, who not only have extremely loud voices, as we all know, uh, but also have excellent hearing. That way they can call to each other, communicate with one another, locate one another, and uh, send information and receive information through their ears. Mm. So it makes sense that uh, creatures who have excellent ears would also have voices that uh, run the gamut from extremely loud and uh, piercing to very quiet, very soft. And I have described how chickens, sometimes when you hold them close to you, will, and I mean very close to your chest, to your neck and to your face, and stroke their, their head and their, their body and uh, under their, their chin, their faces are very, very sensitive. And so they will start to purr, like a cat almost. They'll go... Hmm. And it is the sweetest sound in the world. And many years ago, when I had a large white hen rescued from a horrible, one of those farmer's markets in Northern Virginia, uh, her name was Sonia. We named her Sonia. She was a very happy hen. And she was very, very sensitive. And I would say very empathic toward me. I mean, she was very aware of me. And uh, one day a terrible thing happened where a fox killed one of our chickens. That doesn't happen now because we've enclosed our whole predator proof yard here, but a fox killed our little rooster, Joey, uh, Josie. And I sat on the floor in the living room because she was in the living room with me and I just started to cry. And uh, I was so distressed. And she plodded over on her big, heavy legs and she just, kind of wrapped her face in my neck and hair and she just started purring and purring and purring Hmm. and as I told a reporter once for an article that appeared in the Washington Post and this was the end of the article it ended on that note I described that and I said I wished I could have stayed in that moment forever and that's how moved I was by Sonia's She knew I was sad. I don't know if she knew why I was sad, but the point is she picked up on my emotion and Mm -hmm. she came over, she plodded over from where she was to comfort me physically. And her little voice was just so, well, it was comforting. Mm. That's so beautiful. I
0: love that story. So let me ask you how you feel about the common phrase that we that we hear a lot in the uh, animal advocacy community of um, be a voice for the voiceless and well,
1: i have challenged that yeah. statement numerous times and in fact there's a magazine that i like very much and have ha- had the privilege of had of having some articles published in where the poem at the beginning now it's a 19th century poem by somebody named uh, L.O. Wilcox, and talks about, uh, we are the voice of the dumb. And that used to be a, a common term used for animals, that they're dumb. Now, the term which means stupid also means voiceless. They can't speak. Mm-hmm. And, and and now we don't hear the word dumb, the poor dumb animals anymore, like they're stupid and they're voiceless. but But we do still see and hear Uh, what you just noted that uh, we are the voice of the voiceless. And I have said, and some others, and I'm sure you have said, these animals are not voiceless. Animals have voices. What I say is we are their voice, capital V in the world of human beings, other human beings. We have to be their political voice. We have to be their vicarious voice. We have to speak for them in the human domain, but they are not voiceless themselves. And they have many, many ways of communicating amongst themselves, as well as with other species, including ourselves, and they have ways with their voices telling us how they feel whether they feel good or bad, or they're frustrated or distressed or uh, happy or satisfied. So I don't like any language that, however well-intended or just simply kind of used by rote, I don't like language that in any way misrepresents or denigrates the members, uh, the individuals of other species. I mean, I don't like language that denigrates anybody, whether they be human or otherwise, but to continue calling other animals voiceless is just, it's incorrect and it's, um, it's unfair to them because it's not true, they're not voiceless and we shouldn't be saying that anymore. We need to, always out of movement, we need to be more conscious of our language also, too,
0: with, I, I mean, I, th- I think that the voice for the voiceless, you know, is, it was obviously well-intended, yes. uh, you know, it was, it was well-intended, but yeah, we need to rethink that now and really not use it because like you said, they are not voiceless at all. Uh, they're they, unheard. They're unlistened. They're unheard. Yeah. Yes. That might be better, yes. <laughs> a better way to say it. You know, the voice yeah. of the unheard. right. Right. And we're we have to be their voice and interpret their voices right. uh, for humans right. to understand. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, all the writing we do, all the speaking we do, <laughs> yeah, we're we're acting as interpreters, right, uh, to make their voices heard. And of course, one of the great things about good sanctuaries is that, in addition to the educational voices of ourselves, we can actually people can actually hear at least some of the actual voices of the animals themselves.
0: Well, Karen, it's been really great talking to you. Um, we are going to need to wrap up. And I just wondered if you had any final thoughts for the listeners.
1: Well, I think my final thought right now is this. You've chosen much of what I had to say, which I'm delighted about from the new anthology in which you have an essay and I have an essay about um, Uh, activist voices, vegan voices. And one of the things I like about this book is that it is talking about taking action. Oftentimes, there's been this idea that people go vegan, but they're basically passive. And it's just about what they eat. And often, there's no real animal activism beyond just being vegan. And what this book is showing is how all the vegan voices who are represented in it in the form of stories and essays are all taking action of one kind or another. They're seeing that once they go vegan, they want to do more. They went vegan in many cases because they met somebody who was doing more, who was not only vegan, but who was an animal liberationist, who was an animal rights activist, who was out there on the street, who was rescuing animals, who was starting a sanctuary, who was uh, actively getting out there with podcasts and all the different ways, who were telling the animal stories. And uh, there is just so much that we need to do to make it not just a passive, it's just about me situation, but about the animal's It's about us getting out there and doing what we can. And I've seen in the past 30 years since I've been doing this work, a huge growing interest around the world in animals, particularly farmed animals among people, and a growing number of animal activists of all kinds all kinds of people are starting to want to help animals. And we want to feel proud and good of being members of that community. But I just underline that when you get discouraged, when you feel that your work is not uh, proceeding uh, fast enough, uh, you want to keep in mind that every social justice effort is a very, very long slog. And we don't yet have social justice perfection (laughs) at all, even in this country, as we well know. And uh, the real effort to bring justice to animals and care for them and to liberate animals from the abuses that we impose upon them is still a very new phenomenon It only goes back to about 1970. And now we're really, I believe, on a roll. And we need to to keep our eyes focused on our goals. We need to keep our eyes focused on what we want to have happen in this world and that we want to help make happen in this world. And when you go to work, when you turn your feelings into productive activity, that helps you. And it helps the animals, and it makes the world a better place. So being an activist is a way, it's a therapy for us, and it's a way of making the world that we want come closer every day. Really
0: um, beautifully said. And and knowing that activism can manifest in so many different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be just going into the streets with a sign or something that you might have in your head. This book is a great example of that. Like you said, there's so many different angles and people doing so many different things with the arts and rescue and uh, writing, and there's just lots of different ways to engage in animal activism. So find your passion and your uh, your voice within it. Yeah?
1: Yeah. I was going to say too, uh, there is a wonderful section in Vegan Voices that uh, is uh, artists, talking yeah. about how they use their talents, their artistic talents. There are many different kinds of talents to advance the case for animal rights, animal uh, liberation. And it's really inspiring. So yes, as you say, absolutely. We have to do what our given talents, yeah. our yeah. given passion enables us to do best. We need to find like, what do I do best? What can I bring? I bring to helping animals? What can I bring to the animal advocacy community? And then develop that skill, develop that ability and give it to give it to the animals, give it to the movement and give it to everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just great, Karen. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on today. It's really been wonderful to talk to you. I am I'm grateful for all you do and for United Poultry Concerns. Thank you again so much for being on.
1: Thank you, Hope. It's been a great pleasure and always an honor.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. Okay, well, that wraps up our Vegan Voices series and also just about wraps up the year. I'll have one more episode in 2021 and... I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to do a kind of a special, fun, silly episode with my husband, Kojin, as my guest. Kojin and I are going to tell the stories of some of our animal rescue situations over the years. Kojin has been at my side over the last 21 years during numerous exciting and treacherous and dangerous and nail-biting animal rescues, and, and don't worry, spoiler alert, they all have very happy endings, so I hope you tune in for that. It should be fun. So I'll mention this again next episode, but just so you know, I'm going to take a little break from the podcast in January, just to take a breath from the constant and intense work of creating these podcasts as I do it all myself. So just, there won't be an episode in January, but I'll be back in action with new episodes in early February. I really hope that you are loving the podcast. Please help us grow by giving us a five-star rating in your listening app, maybe sharing an episode with a friend, sharing on social media. Your support and promotion are critical to us growing and reaching even more listeners. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope that you're enjoying this reflective inward time, the uh, inward energy of the winter. And please live vegan.